Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. In 1987, the UN's Brundtland Commission put a new term into general circulation, sustainable development. The concept instantly caught fire. Our Prime Minister committed his government to the idea. The Canadian International Development Agency made it their policy. So did the World Bank. The trouble was, no one really knew what the term meant. The Brundtland Commission made a stab at a definition. They defined as sustainable development which meets the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. But this only transformed the vexing problem of how to define sustainability into the even more vexing problem of how to define needs. If the problem of what sustainable development is has a solution, it may rest on the work of economist Herman Daly. For 20 years, Daly has been grappling with both the theoretical and the practical questions that arise in trying to define sustainability. What is the proper scale of economic activity for a given society? How can ecological limitations be incorporated into economic theory? How can societies gain the benefits of free markets without being destroyed by their unwanted side effects? Let's build for economic society the largest feasible playpen uh, in which you can leave the, the child, the person, to be free. I mean, if, if we run around uh, always trying to correct individual behavior every time somebody does something a little wrong, we go nuts. So, you know, just build an area within which the market and people can be free, but set the boundaries so that we can't hurt ourselves uh, by overstepping and, and destroying the niche the ecological niche in which in which we live and on which we depend. So if we can set those boundaries, then we can rely on the market within those boundaries. But the market itself can't set the boundaries for itself. It needs it needs uh, collective social community action and coherence to to set those uh, overriding limits. Tonight on Ideas, in part three of our four-part series, Redefining Development. We present a conversation with Herman Daly. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. There's something fundamentally wrong, Herman Daly once said, in treating the earth as a business in liquidation. And yet, this is precisely how modern society has viewed the earth, as something to be used up rather than husbanded or sustained. Endless growth and ever-increasing consumption are fundamental postulates of our economic science. The limitations of this approach are now widely evident. Adam Smith's invisible hand has become an invisible foot, Daly has said, inexorably kicking nature and society to pieces. But conventional economic theories can't get to grips with the problem. For this reason, Daly believes, we need a new economics. He calls his preferred approach a steady-state economics, and he brought out his first book about it in 1971. There he posed the fundamental questions which have dominated his work. If economic society is to stop growing, at what level should it maintain itself, and how is this to be accomplished? Last year, Daly brought out an ambitious new book called For the Common Good, Redirecting the Economy Toward Community, the Environment, and a sustainable future. The book was co-authored by theologian John Cobb. Daly and Cobb argue 
that we have now entered the era of what they call uneconomic growth, a growth which impoverishes rather than enriches, where the faster we run, the behinder we get, as Alice says in Through the Looking Glass. They call for new, more sensitive measures of economic welfare, for a new economic anthropology, which replaces the isolated human atoms of classical theory with the model of what they call persons in community, and for a new sense of the absolute natural limits of economic activity. For many years, Herman Daly was a teacher at Louisiana State University. Today, he's a senior economist in the Environment Department of the World Bank in Washington. I visited him at his office at the bank earlier this year, and we began our conversation by talking about his most important teacher, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, with whom he studied at Vanderbilt University. Rogan's great achievement was to conceive economics in terms of the second law of thermodynamics, the so-called entropy law, and to point out how, in the light of this theory, economic activity inevitably degrades the environment. He was really interested in tying economics to its biophysical foundations and in seeing the influence of the laws of thermodynamics on particularly the entropy law, how that constrained, limited, influenced economic life. Uh, he developed something that you might well call bioeconomics or physical economics without throwing out the social science part. I mean, he didn't try to reduce value to energy or entropy or any such thing. He said, you know, value has, has uh, psychic roots, but it also has physical roots. And whereas neoclassical theory investigates the psychic roots in great detail, it totally neglects the physical roots. And he, he said about correcting that, you can only burn the same lump of coal one time. <laughs> you can't recycle the ashes into, into coal again. Maybe you can use them for soap or something else, but it's, it's in a long dissipative chain. So there's no perfect recycling. I mean, there's no recycling of energy at all. Or if you do recycle energy, it always takes more energy to carry out the recycle than the amount recycled. And materials recycling is never 100% complete, and it always takes extra energy. So while it may be a good idea, it's not a free lunch, and it doesn't get you out of the, the ultimate dependence on this entropic um, flow of matter and energy from the environment through the economy and then back to the environment as waste. So having Rogan as a teacher, you posed the problem of the steady state to yourself right from the start. Yes, I did. Now, he's, he's never liked that. He's always felt that was a, a point at which uh, his disciple had uh, somewhat deserted him or had not taken him seriously enough. Uh, because, the, well, the fun, and he's, in a sense, he's, of course, right that there is no such thing as a steady state in the very long run. If the entropy law is true, it's, always gonna, it's eventually going to run down. Well, my attitude is, that's right, I accept that, but I still think there's a big difference between uh, 50 years and 500,000 years, even though maybe in 5 million years it's all over with. Why was it that the, the biophysical constraints were left out of classical economics? I think the reason is that economic theory developed at a time when the human scale in the total biosphere was relatively small. And so it made a certain amount of sense to think of sources of raw material and sinks for waste material as, as infinite or not really scarce. So economics abstracts from whatever is scarce, is not scarce. And um, 
now the scale of the human economy has grown to where it's, it's a, no longer a negligible force in the biosphere. So uh, we have to you know, change that, that assumption. And I suppose the other thing is this uh, a kind of pre-analytic vision of the nature of the economic process as, a, as an isolated circular flow. Uh, commodities exchange from firms to households, house, and factors go from households to firms, and it just kind of goes around and around in a circle with no inputs from the outside, no outputs to the outside. So the econo this vision which you find in the first pages of any textbook, standard textbook, is, uh, is that of an isolated system. An isolated system has no environment. It has no points of contact with the environment. So you, from the very beginning, you, you abstracted from these kinds of things, and, and it's pretty hard to bring them back in after you've de developed your whole theory on the basis of this abstraction. Then the environment comes along and hits you in the face. You have to deal with it as a, quote, externality, which is why you see that word everywhere in economic literature nowadays, externalities, externalities. These are things that didn't really fit in the theory, but they're too important to ignore, so we have to deal with them somehow. So you do it in a kind of ad hoc fashion as, as externalities. Is it also a question of displacing onto nature uh, problems that uh, uh, to avoid human rivalry? Oh, yes. I think if you look at um, one of the main uh, reasons for growth is to have more for everyone so you don't have to share because sharing brings about conflict and people don't want to give up anything. So uh, if you can just uh, increase the total amount, and that means encroach more on the natural world, take in more materials and energy to divide up among people. And uh, so the, the big thrust for growth, I think, is to, is to, uh, is to avoid sharing or to, to put it off for as long as possible. In their book, For the Common Good, Herman Daly and John Cobb accuse conventional economic theory of what they call the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. The phrase comes from John Cobb's mentor, Alfred North Whitehead. It means, essentially, forgetting that abstractions are abstractions and reading them back into reality as if they themselves were something real. Daly sees this mistake as endemic to the discipline of economics. I mean, suppose that economic activity were uh, making a pizza. Then economic theory would sort of abstract from the pizza one or two characteristics. In this case, by analogy, it would probably abstract the circular shape of the pizza. And then economic theory would consist of, of statements about how fast the radius has to grow in order for the, for the uh, area of the pizza to double in a certain time. Or, or, and then it reasons in these categories. And then uh, it, along comes someone and asks, well, hey, what about, uh, what about cheese and anchovies? And uh, how, much, how much pizza is really enough? And these questions are not easily answered within the context of the geometrical shape of a pizza. And so... Um, the anchovies are an externality. They're, well, they're an externality or they're kind of left out or... or uh, so if you, if you then draw conclusions about real-world economic pizza-making from this theory, which only looks at the circular shape of the pizza, then the... the then that's going to be fallacious. You're going to say, well, we can have a, you know, so many pizzas this size and, and it'll turn out there won't be enough anchovies or something. You will have abstracted from all of these other things like anchovies and cheese and reasoned only in terms of the circular shape of the pizza. 
Well, that's the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. I mean, you've left those things out of your basic abstractions, and then you draw conclusions that have to do with those things, and frequently they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Does the fact that economics presumes first to be a social science and then to be an independent discipline also enter into this problem of abstraction? Oh, yeah. Abstraction is, is rampant, of course, in all disciplines. I think maybe it reaches toxic levels in economics. And, of course, I don't want to, I'm not knocking abstraction because that's necessary for thinking. And, indeed, the, the identifier, the, uh, the father, let's say, or the person who spoke about the fallacy of misplaced concreteness was Alfred North Whitehead, who was certainly no stranger <laughs> to abstract thought. And, uh, but precisely because he was so adept at abstract thought, he recognized its limitations as well as its powers and emphasized this. Now, I think often in, in economics and in other disciplines, we, are, we see really only the, the power of abstract thought which is considerable, and tend to be a little bit blind to the limitations that it, that it raises. You know, by the nature of the case, if, if, you're, if you've abstracted from cer certain things that are important, then <laughs> they're going to come back and haunt you uh, at a later stage of your, of your uh, thought and policy. Before we come to those accumulating externalities, mm -hmm. what are the other major assumptions of classical economics you'd want to identify here as, as now being problematic? Well, I think there's the, uh, the homo economicus as the pure individual uh, who, whose identity is totally self-contained and so that all relations between individuals are purely external. That is, the individual is defined independently of all his relationships with everyone else and, uh, and all relations are external. Uh, we, John Cobb and I have argued that a better model of, of a truer a, a homo economicus that is that people are persons in community. That is, their very self-identity is made up of many of, of these relations, the most important of these relationships. So relationships are internal to the very definition of the individual and not just external things uh, to the individual. And if you take that point of view, then, then community becomes important community is built into the definition of the individual and to what the individual wants and how he acts. In current economics, community is nothing other than the subtotal of individual relationships. And all of these relationships are external, so community is, is just an aggregate of individuals. But we say community is much more than an aggregate of individuals. It's community enters into the very definition of, of what the individual is, how he sees himself. As, you know, if I am, you know, son of Mildred and Edward, father uh, of Karen, uh, husband to Marcia. If you take all those things away from me, then there's not a whole lot left. You know, and there's something left, but there's not much. And so we say that these, uh, these, all these relationships then are, constitute the individual's identity. You spoke earlier of the externalities, the, uh, which are added, uh, that the theory doesn't take account of, what, mm -hmm. which have to be added, mm -hmm. right? And these accumulate. Yeah. More and more are identified, which corresponds to Thomas Kuhn's theory of what happens to a scientific paradigm. Exactly, yeah. More and more things are seen to be wrong with mm -hmm. it. Yes? Yeah. Do we need a new paradigm? Oh, yeah, I think so. And uh, the, the externalities are almost perfectly analogous to uh, Ptolemaic epicycles. You know, the, the, before Copernicus, uh, you could uh, 
or I guess Newton, uh, they always wanted to explain the motions of the heavenly bodies in terms of circles, because obviously a circle is the perfect figure. I mean, why would God do anything as weird as an ellipse? You know? So you, you keep having circles, and then circles piled on circles until you manage to get them all to trace out the actual pattern. And it, it seemed to, it, it worked. It was just terribly complicated. And then went, once the idea came, well, let's use an ellipse, then the whole thing was greatly simplified. So I think that's what we're doing with externalities. Externalities are, are epicycles. We just keep pounding, uh, applying them uh, more and more. And we need to recognize then that, uh, that uh, economic that commodities don't just flow in nice little circles within the, uh, within the economy but they take broad elliptical orbits which go through the ecosystem and then back through the economy and affect many different things. So nature and community are in effect uh, the ellipses of the new paradigm. Yeah, I, that you might say that, the, uh, the, the, the nature and community the, as the foci of, the, of an ellipse that defines the... Mm -hmm. You also express in your book reservations, however, idea of a paradigm, uh, reservations about a, a powerful new explanatory framework. Well, we, we've expressed um, reservations about a deductive system, and we've, uh, because economics has modeled itself after physics, and it wants to be a deductive system. Just get a few first principles that are right, and then by mathematics you can work out everything else. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of doubts about that. We think that we ought to be much more historical and recognize the uh, changing circumstance of time and place and not try to, to be so uh, all-embracing all in terms of uh, economic theory. Economics more uh, as a sort of natural history of, of human activity? Yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. It's more on the order of natural history, which is... Uh, which has a few principles. It's not bereft of, of any uh, unifying principles, but it, it tends to be rather historical in particular rather than uh, just deductive and, and totally general uh, in, in its approach. And on the thing of, of paradigm, uh, you know, I'd, I've recently discovered uh, that uh, the great economist Joseph Schumpeter, long before Thomas Kuhn, had expressed the same idea using a different term, he, he spoke of a pre-analytic vision. He said, before analysis can begin, you have to have a, a pre-analytic cognitive act, which he called vision, which gives you the basic shape of the thing that you're going to analyze. And anything that's left out of your pre-analytic vision can't be corrected by later analysis. You know, that, that's sort of related to that fallacy of misplaced concreteness again. Once you've left it out, you're not going to get it. Uh, so. I felt that um, you know Schumpeter's way of looking at things was uh, very much like Kuhn's, and I even think of, that the term pre-analytic vision is more descriptive than paradigm. I think that really tells you what's going on. Herman Daly is seeking a new paradigm, or pre-analytic vision, for economics. But there's a great deal in economics that he wants to preserve. In terms of Ivan Illich's distinction between those seeking an alternative economics and those seeking an alternative to economics, Daly is definitely on the side of alternative economics. He doesn't challenge the basic postulate of scarcity, for example. His aim is not to redefine economic activity, but to establish it within its proper limits, to see, for example, what markets are good for and what they aren't good for.
the thing that economics does rather well, or at least markets do rather well, is to allocate resources among alternative uses by using decentralized decision-making. It's a way, markets are a way of getting decisions way down to the, to the local level of the individual user and avoiding huge bureaucracies and central planning and all of that. So I think that's what market economics does well. What it does poorly, what, it, what the market has no real capacity for sensing, and I think are really two things. One, which has long been recognized, the distribution of income. Markets will distribute income in a way which may be efficient from an incentive point of view, but it can be highly unjust. So justice and distribution, that's long been recognized. The other, which I think the recognition is much more recent, is the question of the optimal or proper scale of the entire human economy relative to the ecosystem. The market has a tendency to grow, and there reaches a point at which, as the economy continues to grow, the marginal, the extra costs of further growth are greater than the extra benefits. Beyond that point, further growth doesn't make you richer, it makes you poorer because it increases costs faster than benefits. Now, we haven't recognized that yet in our public policy and so forth. We generally say, well, you know, growth is, we just take it for granted that the benefits far outweigh the costs. I mean, they did in the past, so why won't they in the future? Well, they won't in the future because we're, we're at a much larger scale now and we cause much greater impacts on the natural world and then which produces much greater feedbacks from the natural world. Ozone depletion, CO2, greenhouse gases, acid rain, all these things are products of a large-scale intervention by human beings in the ecosystem and, uh, and their costs. And these things are increasing faster at the margin than the benefits. I mean, to take an extreme example, uh, if uh, ozone depletion results from CFC propellants getting into the atmosphere, well, what's the benefit of these propellants? Well, instead of a finger pump uh, on a can, you have a, a pressurized spray. Um, maybe it has some advantages in, um, in air conditioning. Okay, what are the costs? The costs may be uh, increased incidence of skin cancer, disruption of agriculture worldwide. So at the margin then, the costs seem to go up faster than the benefits uh, in, in many dimensions of economic growth. And I think um, this we have to recognize the, the concept of an optimal scale of the entire human economy relative to the ecosystem, along with an optimal allocation of resources and a just distribution of, of wealth. Is it only because physical nature begins to kick back that there's a hole in the ozone layer? Or is it, do you think, that human nature also revolts against the scale of economic activity that we presently have? Oh, yeah, I think uh, human, human nature also uh, suffers under this. And this is partly what John Kahn and I were trying to get at it with, the, with the idea of community, that what the most satisfi satisfying relations people have I mean, really, I think, stem from community and from some sense of belonging into a place and time and a and group and satisfying personal relationships more than consumption of another tennis racket or a golf club or something. Um, so if, if in our 
striving for efficiency to produce more golf clubs, uh, we end up destroying communities so that you can't find a golfing partner anymore or that it's hard for you to make friends or, or talk to anyone. Uh, uh, then, then we've given up more than we've gained. And I think this is, uh, this is what John Cobb and I were trying to get back into economics. How to get from here to there is something you've been thinking about for many, many years. A number of books, steady-state economics, you've made mm -hmm. proposals. Can we talk about what the, your major proposals are to create, to, first of all, to find the optimum mm -hmm. scale? Mm -hmm. How can one think of that? Yeah, we, uh, of course, one of our problems is that uh, we don't measure the, the costs of growth. We just have GNP, which is a mixture of cost and benefits insofar as they cause expenditures. We just throw them all together. So if we could do something to, I mean, this is hard to kind of separate out the cost component of GNP and the benefit component, keep separate accounts and occasionally compare them instead of just adding them together. Now, one thing John and I did in the, in the book was an appendix. Uh, we developed an index of, of uh, sustainable economic welfare. And one way of interpreting that index one, is to say that what we found was that for the United States from 1970 to 1986, which was the last year of our series, extra costs of economic growth in the U.S. were sufficient to outweigh extra benefits so that welfare, aggregate welfare, was pretty much constant, declined even a little bit, according to what we consider to be a fairly reasonable measure. Mm -hmm. Could you give an example of, a, of a, something that looked like a benefit when it was aggregated in GNP, which was actually a cost when you teased it out? Well, I think there are um, two major categories that, that fall there. One is the uh, liquidation of natural capital. I mean, forests, mines, you cut down a forest, you know, beyond its natural regenerative capacity, then that's consumption of capital. The forest kept in its original state would yield a certain income, a certain sustainable yield of trees year after year. But you go and you just cut down the whole forest, and in the year you cut it down, you treat all that as income. That's not, that's not proper. That's, that's capital consumption. That's like selling your house and spending all the money this year and, you know, thinking you were rich because you sold your house this year and you, and you, and you, you know, lived high on the hog, and then, but then the next year you're poor. And uh, similarly with, uh, with mines, I mean, depleting a mine, you count all the copper sold, uh, you know, in the current year as pure income, a large part of that is, is capital. So consuming capital. And the other thing uh, is not subtracting what economists call regrettably necessary defensive expenditures. Expenditures that we have to make to protect ourselves from the side effects of other production. So that um, if, if a, a, fir a firm is polluting the air and causing uh, medical upper respiratory problems and you have to go to the doctor, to, then those medical expenditures are really the cost of produ producing whatever was being produced that caused you to get sick. So according to your calculations, the United States has already entered an era of diseconomic or uneconomic growth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uneconomic or I'd even say anti-economic growth in the sense that uh, if we grow now, 
costs seem to be going up faster than benefits, so that makes us poor. And it's hard for people to, to, to become accustomed to that watershed because if you frequently people say, oh, we have to grow more, we have to grow more in order to be able to, to afford the costs of cleaning up and of helping the poor. Well, nobody doubts that if you're truly richer, then it's easier to do everything, including clean up costs of growth and help the poor. But the question at issue isn't that. The question is, does growth from the present margin really make you richer, or is it not making you poor? If it's making you poor, then we can't appeal to growth as a way to, to help clean up or pay extra expenses. So it just makes things more difficult. How long have we already been in this era of diseconomic growth, by your reckoning? Well, um, I'm, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but our rough calculations uh, sort of show that as I mentioned before, from 1970 to 1986, at least over that period, it looks like welfare in the U.S. has been pretty flat. Now, you know, I should say that this depends on a whole lot of assumptions that one makes in, in measuring the index, um, one of which in our case was that we, we weighted income to poor, extra income to poor people more heavily than extra income to rich people. And we have, you know, there's very good reasons in economic theory for doing that. I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, idea of diminishing marginal utility, everyone satisfies their most pressing wants first. And so a, a dollar income to a poor person means more food, clothing, shelter, basic needs. An extra dollar income to a rich person may mean a, you know, a third TV set uh, in a summer home or something, which doesn't really add to his well-being nearly as much as an extra amount of food adds to the well-being of a, of a poor person. To achieve a steady state, I brought this up earlier and then got on to another mm -hmm. subject. Mm -hmm. You said, first of all, you would need the means of identifying what's going on mm. in the economy. What are the benefits? What are the disbenefits? Mm. What would be the other prerequisites yeah. of a steady I state? Sure, I didn't really address that. Um, I think you really don't even need, you need to know those measures of cost and benefits to choose an optimal level at which to maintain a steady state. But we can maintain a steady state at various levels and not the optimum one. Uh, but I think basically you need to limit two things. Uh, you need to limit uh, human population growth and you need to limit the uh, growth of human, per capita human consumption. So if we put some uh, limits on reproduction and some limits on our cons per capita consumption, that's what that's what I think is required. Now, I think the easiest way to limit uh, consumption of, of, and I mean here consumption of, of resources, material, physical things, is to do it at the, at the depletion end, at the input end, to restrict the amount that we extract from nature and bring into the economy. By, by restricting that, we will ultimately also limit the amount that exits as waste uh, later on. So something on the order of a depletion quota or severance tax. As time goes on, I tend to become, I mean, make more and more modest uh, proposals as my more <laughs> radical ones are, are ignored. So now I'm at a, sort of for the United States at least, I'm saying that here's a proposal which wouldn't get us all the way to a steady state, but I, I think it would be a, a nice step forward for the U.S., would be to put a heavy severance tax on resources, particularly energy. 
raise most of our public revenue from a heavy tax on resources, then ease up on the income tax, particularly the taxation of lower incomes, and perhaps even have a negative income tax at the, at the very low levels of income, again, financed by receipts from the severance tax. This would do several things. It would limit the material inflow of resources out of nature into the economy. We've now made that expensive. Also, it would incentivate the uh, technologies which would use these resources much more efficiently and productively because they're more expensive. We're going to economize more on them. Just like we did when the Arabs raised the price of oil, we learned to be much more efficient with oil. But instead of paying the Arabs the extra money, why don't we pay it into the U.S. Treasury and ease up on income taxes and let the poor have some uh, benefit as a result. And I think also a severance tax is easier to uh, administer and collect than an income tax. It's, it's harder to avoid it, and it has less of, a, um, less of an effect on incentives to work. So here would be something that we could do which would increase the efficiency of resource use. I mean, the technological optimists tell us that we can increase efficiency by you know, factors of 10 or 20. Okay, if that's right, then let's do it. Here's a way to push. Pessimists say, well, we probably can't do that, but we really need to limit the resource throughput. Well, this limits the resource throughput. So both optimists and pessimists ought to be um, happy with such a proposal. Well, that's, that's a, you know, a kind of a one step towards a, a steady state system. Don't you run into the problem if you're making the proposal for the United States of the interdependence of the United States? Absolutely. I mean, American producers competing with producers in other countries which haven't done this? Well, you're absolutely right. This is a, this is a uh, really big problem and one that I think is just, well, you and Canada have already had a debate on free trade and things like that. But in this country, uh, it hasn't been debated. And the big problem, the big conflict is, just as you've outlined, I think all economists will agree that the way to deal with environmental problems is to internalize environmental costs into prices. If a country does that, then its prices go up. If its prices go up, it will be at a trading disadvantage relative to countries who have not internalized those prices. So I think the internal policy of sustainable development or steady state re is going to require some kind of an external protection. You'll probably have to have tariffs to protect producers against countries who do not internalize those costs. Maybe when a whole bunch of countries that adopt the same national rules of cost internalization, then you might have free trade among, among people who play by the same rules. But certainly you can't have some countries internalizing costs while others don't and then have them trade freely with each other. So in other words, regionalization of economies, if not nationalization, making them more self-sufficient units mm -hmm. would be a prerequisite for a steady state. Yes. I Unless think you could devise a way for everyone in the world to move at once, which doesn't sound too promising. Yes, that, that sounds kind of hard to do. So uh, you're better off to have um, a greater degree of self-sufficiency. We argue for this in the book. We go back to uh, John Maynard Keynes, who comes as a surprise to many people to find that he argued very forcefully for national self-sufficiency, not in an extreme autarkic sense, but just in the sense, he, I think he said something to the effect that uh, 
that ideas, art, hospitality, travel, these are the things that are international. But let goods be homespun as, as large, as much as possible. And also let finance be primarily na and national. So, you know, we call that uh, short supply lines. Try to keep your supply lines short. We don't, make, don't try to make a fetish out of it of being totally self-sufficient in any arbitrarily defined area, but just other things equal, keep those supply lines short. Certainly doesn't seem to be the way things are going at the moment. No, really it doesn't. I think there's a tendency to rejoice in, uh, in the maximum possible interdependence and lengthening of, of supply lines. People seem to think that this ties the world together into one complex interdependent unit and that therefore people will all learn to uh, get along with each other because the cost of not doing so will be too great. I just don't think history bears that out very much. I think it just means that when we, when we screw up, uh, the cost of mistakes in one area are going to be spread all over. This may come from an earlier period when you were making more radical proposals that no one listened to, but in, in your first version of the steady state, I believe you also proposed maximum and minimum incomes to limit consumption. Yes. Uh, this was a, a notion, and, and I think this proposal, I still like it. We didn't really make it in the book, but we came pretty close. The approach we take is limits to inequality. I mean, the idea is not to push towards equality because there are many good reasons for having different incomes. But unlimited inequality is a violation of community. I mean, if one person owns everything and everybody else owns nothing, then surely that you can't talk about community. And so there has to be some sort of limited inequality to, uh, that goes along with community. Now, if you go all the way to pure, to absolute equality, that too, is, that's a denial of individual differences in community, which, which we think should be respected. So there's a, then some limited band of inequality. How, what should that range be? Well, that's an empirical question. We can experiment with various ones. My own view is I think a, a factor of 10 difference between the highest and lowest is, is enough to reward all important differences and, and still create a, a sense of community in, in which people respect uh, the differences and, and the need for rewarding uh, greater effort. One could look at, just look at a university or look at the military or look at uh, civil service you find generally something like a factor of 10 difference. I don't see any reason why it needs to be much greater than that. I mean, nowadays, what do we have? It must be a factor of a, oh, of a hundred or more. In other words, where people have had to come to grips with this in a bureaucracy, they've already arrived roughly at this factor of 10 difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah I, and I think that, see, even this means what happens when people would re reach the maximum limit. We say, oh, well, their incentive is gone, they won't produce anymore. Well, the opportunities that they would have exploited are still around for other people to exploit. Once they've hit the limit, that doesn't mean, you know, what can they do then? If they really enjoy what they're doing, they can keep on doing it just for the fun of it. If they don't enjoy what they're doing, and would re well then, hooray, here's an opportunity to go do so. I can be a gardener now. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've hit my limit. I can go write a book, or I can be a gardener, or I can uh, try to be a a professional tennis player and I won't starve because I get beat all the time or yeah, whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. The third aspect was limiting births, mm -hmm. incomes, births, depletion yeah. of resources. Mm -hmm. This is probably the hardest one, certainly the most difficult for me to contemplate. Yeah. Can you say, first of all, what your initial proposal 
on this was and then what changes you've gone through in relation to it? Well, the original proposal light was something that actually Kenneth Boulding had first uh, suggested, which I was an, an orphan brainchild of his that I, I adopted. And it, he's uh, already driven out of yeah, town over it, right? right. It, uh, he, uh, <laughs> I love Kenneth Bowling. He's one of the people I've learned most from. But you know, he, he, he first proposed it by saying, uh, "In all seriousness, I believe that." And then uh, later on, he referred to it as a few years ago. I somewhat jokingly suggested that. <laughs> but the idea was, uh, if you if you conceive that the reproduction has to be limited, okay, then let's create a new right to reproduce a legal right to reproduce. And let's distribute that right equally, the basis of total equality, one person, one right, or each woman, two rights, or various ways you could do it. And then, not everybody wants to reproduce, not everybody can reproduce. Those who don't, then, could give, trade, uh, sell their right to somebody who wants more than two children and can afford to buy it or can finagle you into giving it to them. Uh, well, many people just react with horror to that. Uh, they say, oh, the rich will have an advantage. The rich will have an advantage. Yes, that's true. The rich always have an advantage. That's the whole point of being rich. The rich buy Cadillacs and the poor can't. The rich get access to, to blood uh, when they need it for operations. The poor don't. I mean, this is, this is true. And if we don't want that to happen, if we want to, then the way to do that is to limit the total advantages of the rich by the other institution, which is the limits to inequality, the minimum and the maximum. We say we're going to take care of that with a, a minimum income uh, so that people will not be disadvantaged beyond some point. Also, I think that um, this is not buying and selling children. Uh, this is a legal right to reproduce. If more children are born to richer rather than poorer parents, then there's something to be said for that. I mean, that's a benefit to the children. It's, it tends to equalize the, the per capita distribution of income uh, if that happens. Now, the problems come, of course, in enforcement. What sort of ways would you, would you have for enforcement? Well, any sort of population control scheme is going to face a problem of, of enforcement. What do you, and I, th I think, uh, I don't know, you know, really what are the, the best ways you want ways which do not pen penalize the, uh, the innocent child. Unfortunately, the Chinese program, uh, they're, they're some of their means of enforcement fall rather heavily on, on the children who, uh, who are sort of, uh, and indeed the whole family, the food rations uh, not increased or limited and so on. So I'm not sure, you know, w what would be the best forms of uh, enforcement or, or punishment. I'd just say one thing. I mean, it is a, people look upon this as a restriction of freedom. Sure it is. But if you go back and you read the classic defense of freedom, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, you find that uh, he makes um, a specific case for the, the right of the state to see to it that a country is not overpopulated by, by laws which delay marriage until a couple is able to support children or by various things like this. So uh, there's a long and solid tradition of arguing that uh, there is a collective interest in, in uh, limiting a nation's population. Now in the 19th century it was commonly the practice not to do this, 
But on the other hand, you see there was no welfare state. So the rule then was uh, let the unfortunate offspring starve. And so that was a pretty effective way of, of dealing with overpopulation. It was a very cruel way, and um, I don't think very many people advocate that today. But if we want to move away from that, if we want to adopt the rule that, that uh, unfortunate offspring are not going to be allowed to starve, they're going to be taken care for uh, by the society, then we have a correlative obligation to see to it that there are not so many unfortunate offspring that we can't deliver on that on that obligation. So this is a big problem, uh, and I think we, you know, we just still need to keep plugging away at it. Well, I can't mm -hmm. see that there isn't a problem. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously your proposals are unpalatable. Everybody else's proposals are unpalatable. What's happened in China, for example, seems pretty grim, mm -hmm. and yet it's hard to say, well, just let it go population yeah. is self-limiting at some level. Yeah, it certainly is self-limiting. Uh, it, it's self-limiting in Malthusian terms, uh, you know, what Malthus called uh, the positive checks of uh, misery, starvation, and vice, where he, he considered uh, birth control to be vice. The neo-Malthusian said, no, birth control is not vice. Birth, birth control is prudence. And so, uh, and, and so I'm very much a neo-Malthusian in that, in that sense. I think we, we can exercise some foresight and social planning on the, on the issue of, of birth. Now, the Chinese, I think they deserve uh, a prize and gratitude from all of mankind for having been the first society to, to really seriously try to deal with a problem, and they were driven to it. Uh, for many years, they kept saying, uh, you know, the old Marxist line uh, that um, we have to protect the people from capitalism, not capitalism from the people. The more people, uh, the better, and so on. Well, they... They've uh, backed off from that. Now, the other problem there, it's not just a matter of population. It's also a matter of per capita consumption. What's really limited is the aggregate throughput from nature, the total flow from nature through the economy back to nature at some sustainable level. That's the equal to the product of population times per capita resource consumption. We can operate on either of those variables. In rich countries, we can say, oh, it's good to have a lot of people. Let's just lower per capita consumption. We don't need all this stuff. Let's have more people. We can do that. In poor countries, that's a lot more difficult to do because they're much closer to the, to the minimum necessary, so their only alternative is, is to work on the, on the people uh, factor of the equation and not the per capita consumption side. What is the point, do you think, of making proposals as radical as yours? In, in the present circumstances, where obviously they're not going to be immediately adopted by anyone. No, they, they won't be immediately adopted, but I guess the, the, the reason is that we think the, the present circumstances won't be maintained. Things are going to get a lot worse. And, and when, uh, when these costs of growth become so prevalent that everyone can see them, and already people are far ahead of the politicians. I think people are much more willing to, to accept leadership and recognition of these, uh, of, of these constraints than, than the politicians are. So at some point, you know, after there's been a, a big disaster for environmental reasons, then we get serious and want to reconstruct and do things differently. Well, at least then there'll be something on the table to start with and, and the discussion won't have to start from scratch. And, you know, in a sense, we don't, John, neither John nor I, I think would be very comfortable if we were 
you know, suddenly uh, dictators and, and said, you know, put, all, put everything into practice. I mean, we feel that, that we ought to have to go through the, the gauntlet of convincing people because that's a kind of verification. Uh, it, because we're like other people, and the same arguments that convinced us ought to convince other reasonable people. If they don't, then maybe there's something wrong with our argument. So we have a, we have a certain amount of faith that if we that reason and argument and persuasion is effective and, and will prevail. To the extent that it's not, we're we're quite willing to re-examine our own views. You know, maybe we maybe we're wrong. Mm -hmm. Do you fear that uh, as the era of diseconomic growth continues, mm -hmm. uh, that this actually has a disintegrating effect on society? Right? Well, that a moral disintegration is actually taking place, so that you're losing precisely what you need to reconstruct the world along the lines you've envisioned. That is exactly, I think, the biggest danger, is that at pre what we need is to, to build on the remnants of community that exists in order to enact these, these limits. And if the very system which denies limits is destroying the community, which is necessary to impose the limits, then we're in a really, uh, in a real bind. It's a real impasse. So our our hope is that uh, there's still enough community left, where we can we can begin to build on that, consolidate and build on it, uh, before we we tear things up too much. But you've really you've really, I think, put your finger on what is what is a real danger, that, that the the corrosive effect on community is doubly bad because it's precisely community that you need in order to limit this increasing corrosive effect. At the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, there were a number of books that I think created a mood that you might call ecological pessimism, not optimistic about the human prospect. <clears throat> uh, one of the essays that you anthologized, I think, in, in one of your early volumes was William Ophel's called, uh, what was it called, Leviathan uh, or Oblivion, I yeah, think, that's right. there <laughs> which, you go. That's which puts it pretty strongly, pretty, pretty right? Clearly, yeah. uh, now, at that time, you were, I think, not exactly participating in that mood. You were <clears throat> more concerned to make proposals. Mm -hmm. It's almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you, what your mood is today. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting, all during the years in which I was uh, teaching a lot of this stuff, uh, more than once, I've had I had students come to me and say, "Oh, Professor Daly, this is this is all so pessimistic. I'm going to drop your course. I mean, it's it's just ruining my life. You know, all of the, the too many things to worry about in it." And I I had to take that seriously because these are youngsters, and and many of them uh, are really not well equipped to deal with really pessimistic, serious things. I. I like to make a distinction between um, pessimism and optimism on the one hand and hope and despair on the other. So that I would say whether you're a pessimist or an optimist, that's a kind of a betting man's rational expectation about the way things are likely to turn out. Uh, in that sense, I have to say I'm a pessimist, you know. <laughs> I think, uh, on the other hand, hope versus despair are existential attitudes that you just impose on the world from your own being, or you just say, I, in spite of the fact that 
I am pessimistic. I will be hopeful because it is a sin to despair, and hope is, is the proper attitude. So I will be hopeful, and I hope that my uh, calculations are wrong. I hope that my betting man's expert, I hope I lose the bet, and, and I will set about doing things to try to see to it that I do lose that bet. Uh, so that's a kind of a, a way of squaring that circle, or, or at least living with both, uh, both things. Herman Daly, thank you. Well, thank you very much. One of Herman Daly's signal contributions to his field has been the identification of scale as a critical problem in economics. Until recently, the answer to the question, how big should an economy be, has always been as big as possible. Daly points to the possibility of identifying a natural scale for a given economic activity. In this sense, he belongs to a contemporary tradition which goes back to E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful and before that to the work of Schumacher's teacher, Leopold Kor. Next week, in the final program of this series, I'll visit the Schumacher Society in western Massachusetts and ask what this tradition has to contribute to redefining development. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the third program in our four-part series on redefining development. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Technical production by Lawn Tulk. A printed transcript of this series is available at $5 per program. That's $20 for the series. If you're ordering individual programs rather than the series, please tell us which program you want. Make your check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts and mail it to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. And please allow six to eight weeks from the end of the series for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>